Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The word of the Lord. I find myself trying to find a new pace these days. A pace that doesn't get caught up in the busyness of our day-to-day activity, but a pace that listens. A pace that affirms that the God that we long to hear in our lives, in fact, actually never stops speaking, but sometimes speaks softly and waits for us to quiet our minds and hearts enough that we might hear. But I think for many of us, sometimes we feel just too busy. Like the week goes by in a flash, caught up in the things that pull us from place to place. Perhaps even now, while we might be listening, our mind is drawn in a number of directions, wondering, did we in fact turn the stove off when we left the house? (laughs) Or many, many other things. I hope I didn't cause any stress there, if you're now thinking about your house. (laughs) But it seems as though our culture has come to a conclusion that busyness is in fact a virtue. That the more that we do, the more valuable we are, and the more position we have among our peers. We saw this most demonstrated when the world paused for two years. Even in its continued pause to mitigate the effects of this pandemic, we saw that those of us who were caught up with our busyness, in fact, didn't know what to do. In fact, didn't even know maybe who we are, who we were anymore. This can be problematic for a number of reasons. However, particularly in our faith, I think we can and do sometimes conclude that in order for us to know God more, we must do more. Just if we read more scripture, if we pray longer, if we listen more intently, if we give more, if we serve more, if we join a new small group, and on and on and on. And while these practices are inherently good when viewed as the foundation of how we hear God and how we find value, will ultimately crumble. I think this season of Lent that you've heard us talking about for the last several weeks is one of the most challenging seasons for me personally in my annual pilgrimage to the cross. This season of intentional fasting and reflection is a season where I'm faced with my own infatuation with noise. The way that noise fills my everyday activities. And moments that I don't have it, I feel like something is missing. To pause in a still small pool amidst a bend of an ever-rushing current of water, I feel a little lost. But during Lent, things slow down intentionally. We're invited with Christians all over the world to pause in moments of reflection to say, these things don't save me, but we serve a God who does. For 40 days, Christ followers around the world participate in this ebb and flow of fasting and feasting that begins with Ash Wednesday and culminates with a celebration of Resurrection Sunday. 
And each year I ask Christ to reveal to me the things that are causing unnecessary noise in my life. What ultimately keeps me from seeing and hearing God in God's fullness. And while each year my fast takes different forms, I'm inevitably led to a place of honesty and vulnerability that transforms me in ways that I have never experienced before. And what I fear most and why Lent is such an important practice in my own faith journey is that I fear that fasting is becoming vastly irrelevant in our worship today. Because fasting requires us to let go. Fasting invites us to say, I'm not the one in control, but in fact, I serve a God who is in control. What fasting does for us is it allows us to pause and quiet our minds and hear the still small voice that is always calling to us. I just finished a biography. You've heard us talk about a number of times of a man named Eugene Peterson, who many of you have read some of his works. And what I found so fascinating and captivating about this individual is that he demonstrated this pace of life that is infectious. This pace of life that refused to be caught up in the busyness. A particular example when he was a professor at Regent College in Vancouver, he would have students come into his office seeking out uh, wisdom and guidance assuming that because he had written so many books, offered so many to the academic community, that he would know just the words to say. Yet when students approached him, he would listen, he would smile, and he would invite them to look out the window and stare. Kind of a confusing, weird practice. Something even similar when he would be in class. He would often pause in the middle of his lectures. Just pause and look. To the point where a student walked up to him after class just to inform him that, I don't know if you knew this, but you took six long pauses today in today's lecture. (laughs) Peterson smiled, nodded, and commended that this boy was just too busy in his life. What's fascinating about paces like this, this unhurried pace through life, as rare as we find it, is I find that when I posture myself in a way that models this pace, I hear God in ways that I never thought I would before. This psalm for us demonstrates this posture in a profound way. It demonstrates, I believe, what it means to follow Christ faithfully in moments of both despair and moments of provision. And so I have a a few simple thoughts for us this morning. Because scripture is challenging. Right For generations, women and men have sought to faithfully preach and teach these texts in accessible ways. And while there have been fruitful efforts done, the farther we get away from when these texts were written, the more difficult it becomes. And so any good teacher of Scripture will always tell you that to understand what Scripture means for us today, we have to begin by asking what it meant for those people in the time that it was written. And Psalm 63 is no exception. In the opening words, the psalmist says, in a dry land where there is no water. A reminder to to those that were hearing that they were once a lost people in a dry land. This memory of the Exodus, a time in which this nation of Israel was wandering without provision, not knowing where their water or their food would come from, would remind them of two important things. First and foremost, that they serve a God that is faithful. One who liberated them from the bondage of slavery and one who provided water and food for them amidst the desert through their servant Moses. And while the provision was great and bountiful, there was a second important move made by the psalmist. Amidst this great provision, there's an affirmation from the one speaking of their own frailty, 
their own inability to provide that which they need most. They say, oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. This word, nephesh, that's often translated soul, more accurately describes a throat. In the Hebrew language, it really describes this kind of essence of who we are, the place where life and vitality was, in, was taken and received. And what's being described here is not simply some inner conflict, but a much more profound affirmation that without God's presence in their life, and what they invite us to affirm as well, is that all that we are, both material and immaterial, will suffer, that without God's presence in our lives, our throats will remain dry, unable to find relief. And I worry that at times that we don't often enough affirm our own need for God. While we affirm that God invites us to take part in the work and empowers us to do the work that he has called us to do, we still have to at times remind ourselves that we need God. This virtue of self-reliance, a posture that honors those who have achieved a place in life where they no longer need assistance from others, is often celebrated. And I'm sure while many parents in this room celebrate the time when their kids can start paying some of their own bills, there's also this danger in the way that we uphold and celebrate those who have achieved the ability to not rely on those around them. I think cultures around the world have something to teach us, particularly the cultures that, sh- that teach us that sharing is not only something to be done, but something that is needed. That's the provision and charity in and amongst a neighborhood and a community has something to show us about how much we need God in our lives. I find it incredibly important here at Skyview that one of our values is hospitality. Hospitality has kind of a two-dimensional approach in that it invites us to often set the table, share our space, invite others into where we are, maybe cook our best meal, but other equally important dimension. Hospitality challenges us to enter into others' spaces where we are forced to let go of control and settle into a space that is far less familiar. If you've ever shared food with somebody cross-culturally, maybe in a space that you're unfamiliar with, tried a food that you've never heard of or don't know how to pronounce, these are the moments where those of us bold enough to enter into spaces like this are reminded of our deep and desperate need for one another. The psalmist invites us to affirm this. In the words, O God, you are my God, I seek you with all that I am. I think the second point that the psalmist offer us is a point of waiting. See, following Christ, as many years as I have, in the short time that I've been here on this earth, what I have found most frustrating is that when following Jesus, Jesus doesn't tend to work on the timeline and expectations that I have, but very often invites me to a posture of patience and waiting. And I think this psalm demands a great deal of patience for those who wish to experience God's presence. This phrase with which the psalm begins, I seek you, the psalmist exclaims, really describes the posture of one who not only seeks something but seeks the dawn, is looking for the sunrise, is looking for hope amidst a place of darkness. And while these psalms can sometimes be difficult for us to understand, There's a really important grounding for us. 
two different locations that the psalmist gives us that are key for us if we're to find ourselves in this story. In the first stanza, the psalmist contrasts these two places, the dry and weary land and the sanctuary. While they currently find themselves in a dry place, they remember back to a time where they once were in the sanctuary, where they once were so deeply vested in God's presence that they could not see anything other than that. And this stark contrast between a place that is sacred and a place that perhaps is perceived as unsacred, a place perceived where God's presence is thick and a place where God's presence perhaps is absent. I think the author is inviting us to consider the ways in which we perhaps assume that God is more present in one area of our lives than in others. I think a good reading of scripture invites us where this psalmist invites us to. To say, while God may feel at times more present in one area than the other, God is no less present in the joy and the celebration than God is in the hurt and the pain and the sadness. While we have affirmed for two years that God has not been absent amidst all of this pain and hurt and despair that we have experienced. And while at times perhaps we have been tempted to believe that, we have stood here as testament to the fact that God has still been working. And while the voice may have been small and still and at times hard for us to hear, we believe that the God that is present in the sanctuary, the God that is present in the holiest of moments in our lives is just as present in the moments where we don't know where to go. Waiting also requires a dependence. The following stanza presents another interesting location for us to consider. They say this, when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Whatever the psalmist is learning and inviting us to is something that is done with regularity. Something that is done each and every day as the author ends their moments in their bed. I think just a simple and important affirmation for us that when we follow Jesus, Following becomes a regular practice in our lives. It becomes more than just a moment of surrender, but becomes a daily taking up of our cross. A daily step, a daily walk, and a daily faith that invites us in each and every moment of our lives to say, God, you are here. I think what's fascinating about this, particularly in light of the Hebrew time, is that the night was a terrifying time for those in this era. We often forget the effect that darkness has on the world when light is something that we can so readily produce. When the sun goes down, the lights in our house, even maybe sometimes on their own, turn on. Right? When we decide to go to bed, we shut the lights off. When we decide the day is done, we shut the lights down. We have thick curtains so that the sunrise does not dictate the rhythms and patterns of our day. But it's important for us to remember in this day and age, the watches of the night was a time of fear, a time of uncertainty, a time in which those who had more power sought to conquer and control those who were weaker. And so the psalmist sits as a watcher in the night. I can't imagine the most desirable job in the time. Yet as this psalmist watches, as this person waits, as this person sits there amidst uncertainty, not entirely sure if the sun would rise again, meditates, on the Lord. 
One commentator connects this thought to verse 2 to suggest that the memory of the sanctuary is an experience in which this author spent the night in the temple awaiting the coming sunrise. The experience would have placed this person in the Jerusalem temple facing east towards the Mount of Olives awaiting the sun. And as the sun rose, they would experience this presence of God like they never had before where they would understand the rising sun as a promise that God would be with them that day. Just as faithful discipleship is not simply about how much we can do, how busy we are, how much we can contribute and offer to God, so too discipleship is not about working on our timeline. It's not about working as fast as we can. But discipleship sits and waits on the coming sunrise. Awaits in moments of darkness and uncertainty where we just don't know where God is calling us or what God is inviting us to do, invites us to sit, pause, and listen. I think the third thing the psalmist invites us to do is affirm that faith is not simply something that we feel. It's not simply something that takes place on the insides of who we are, but is this embodied practice that requires all of who we are. Growing up, I had no shortage of exposure to church and its practices and its beliefs. For there was rarely a Sunday when I wasn't in a Sunday school class or in a church service, sitting in the pew, wondering how long this pastor would go on and keep talking. Maybe so, hopefully not this Sunday. <laughs> but by a young age, I felt as though I had heard it all. Like I knew everything that the church had to offer me. And while this was probably grounded in delusion, I assure you it was, because I still have much and much to learn. I found my life saturated with opportunities to learn about who Christ was. However, my choice to eventually follow Jesus with all of who I was, this moment of surrender when I was 17 years old and I said, Christ, I want to follow you. None of that was motivated or catalyzed by these Sunday school classes or any particular sermon or any particular conversation that I might have heard from the pulpit. But the catalyst for this decision took the form of people of real people, people around me who lived out their faith, who not only read the scriptures, but embodied the message that they read. These people would become living translations for me in my journey with Jesus. And the psalmist's experience in the wilderness and the sanctuary is no different, for it maintains this intense, important physicality to it. They say, my flesh faints for you. So I have looked upon you. My lips will praise you. I will lift up my hands to you. I will call upon your name. For there is something deeply tangible that is occurring here. And when I think back on my own faith journey, I remember moments of intense transformation. These moments where I decided to follow Jesus with all, who I, all that I was or the countless moments that I poured out struggles and questions to our Savior. But you know what I remember more about those moments? While the, the feeling that I had, the experience that I thought, the things that, the way that God was transforming my thoughts were profound, what was vastly more profound were these. The feeling of the altar at my home church. The warmth of the tears that spilled from my eyes. The warmth of a hand from a friend, the feeling of an embrace, 
when I felt most alone. This immense physicality that embodied my faith, that invited me to a place that said, faith is not just something that's simply disconnected from who we are, but is deeply rooted in the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we feel and touch and smell, and, and, and so on and so forth, that these were the moments that my faith became real. And we'll find in some Christian traditions around the world that there's this intentional inclusion in the worship gathering, standing, sitting, kneeling during different portions of a service, while maybe seemingly repetitive to the outside observer, are deeply formative practices. And why I know this is that we can simply pray where we sit, sure, but there's something about kneeling at an altar in front of us. While we can listen and meditate on the words of a song, there's something about proclaiming it in the gathering of people. While we can read the words of Scripture in our heads and think about it by ourselves, there's something about reading these words and proclaiming them out loud. There's something to these practical expressions of what we feel on the inside. When we feel the warmth of the sun, maybe we sense God's magnitude. When I pause in the stillness of the night, I remember my smallness. When I feel the pages of the Bible that I read, I sense God's presence in and among us. I think to understand who God is requires us to be deeply aware of the things that are happening around us. Both the joy and the celebration, but also the pain and hurt. If you want to engage in practices such as these, I would invite you to do this. Something a friend of mine mentioned to me recently. So you find yourself engaging in spiritual practices, whether it's reading, praying, meditating, fasting, perhaps switch up the routine with which you approach these practices. Reading scripture in a different location can often change the way that you hear it. Praying in a different part of the house, looking in a different direction. When I sit here in the sanctuary and I pray and I sit in different seats, I'm moved in different ways because I think about each and every one of you as I read scripture. When I sit in this section, it moves on me differently than when I sit over here and I look at the chairs and imagine your faces. There's something that is incredibly important about this way to our faith that I think is becoming more and more lost on us as we move into this modern age. Why I say all this to you today is because there's something that's been happening in my heart, something that happens each and every year as I engage in this pilgrimage to the cross, as I look honestly at my life and say, God, what is causing noise? What is it that's making me move too fast? What is it that's inviting me to think elsewhere? What is it in my life that is orienting me away from where you are calling me to? One of the reasons we moved the seats around even in the sanctuary is a way to visually represent how this season of Lent literally invites us to reorient our lives and hearts towards God. Literally invites us to say, perhaps there are ways that I have been looking in other directions other than the place where God is moving. One final thought before we close. I've learned a few things in my time here in Canada. While it's been very short, I had to pick up quickly on some translation things. 
I learned a few things like this, that a regular coffee indeed is not the default black coffee I assumed it to be, but is one cream, one sugar. Learned that the hard way, because I don't like cream and sugar in my coffee. I learned that nice day is code for anything really above plus one. <laughs> and I also learned that north and south are crucial directions to keep in mind when holiday planning. As we see a mass migration of people from north to south seeking warmer or colder temperatures amidst these months. What I'm reminded of is that for the Hebrew people, directions mattered too. But in scripture, you won't find allusions to north and south, but you'll often hear allusions to east and west. And while this is simply a metaphor, an image that the writers of scripture use to demonstrate something to us, it's an important one. This is what I'll offer as we close. Oftentimes in scripture, those that went east or those that looked east, when they thought about the eastern part of the world, that was categorized as the place where God was not, where God's world, where God's activity was not. And then when they went west, quite the opposite. For example, you'll see this in stories like Jacob and Esau. When Jacob betrays his brother and runs away in fear of his own life, he runs to the east. Yet when God calls him back to a place of redemption, he's called back west. And while this metaphor should not be taken too far, it's an important one when we read, especially the Old Testament works. And it led me to this thought. For in this psalm is a sanctuary experience. An experience of one who spent the night in the temple and stared off into the darkness, awaiting the coming sunrise. A sunrise that would rise not necessarily in the places where they perceived God to be most present, But in fact, as the psalmist looked out into the darkness, they're invited to look out east. Just a simple point of question. For me, as I read scripture and I wonder these things and I try to put myself in the story, I wonder what that represented for this individual who looked out into the places of the darkness. Perhaps when they looked out east, they thought about all the places that God was not. Perhaps when they looked in this direction, they saw the places where they believed God to be absent. Perhaps when they looked in this direction, they saw the pain in the world that they would rather forget. However, it is this direction, it is this place, it is this place where perhaps they have failed to realize that God comes from, is the place where the sun rises. And I think for us, as we hear texts like this and we think about days where there is so much to be discouraged about. We can think about God's activity in this kind of way. That perhaps God wants to work more over here than God wants to work over here. Perhaps these are the lines and boxes in which I place God's activity. Here are the areas where I expect God to work and here are the areas where I doubt that God even remembers people. And I think this text invites us to affirm that God's activity will always begin in the places where we least expect it to be. For this psalmist facing east does not only await the coming sunrise, but it forces them to look directly into the areas where there's the most pain. Directly into the areas where perhaps they have stopped believing that God could work. Every time that I fast, I'm always led to realize the places that still hurt, the places that still burden, the places that are still heavy. And rather than turning away from those places, God invites me to look at them directly 
to look at those moments, those experiences, that baggage, and say, yeah, it's there. But that's where I will rise. But that's where the sun will start. But that is the place where my transformative work in the world will begin. And so following Jesus has not been me running away from the things that have hurt me, but it's actually the opposite. Has been God saying, look at those things. Look at how tightly you cling to them. Look how deep those scars are. Let's start there. So I invite us to consider this morning, if we seek to hear the voice of the Lord in a new way, fast. Fasting is this deeply transformative practice. Whatever it is causing noise in your life, whatever it is causing distraction, leading us to look in a direction other than where God is inviting us to look, when we lay those things down and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, we begin to hear the soft, still voice of our Lord and Savior. As the band comes forward and we close in this last song, I think this Lenten season is an invitation for us to seek after the Lord with a renewed heart, following him into the wilderness spaces of our world, to reorient our whole selves with fasting and renewed practices that we might better learn to hear God's voice. There's no magic formula to following Jesus. There's no set of practices that if we do a number of times in a certain order and pattern that will save us. Yet, God invites us with our lips, with our hands, with our bodies, with all of who we are to follow him. And so as we close and sing this song, I invite us to consider how perhaps all that we are could be a part of what God is doing even in the simple act of kneeling, in the simple act of raising our hands, in the simple act of proclaiming the words that we sing together, that becomes our worship.